Gotta be honest, I don't actually have that much to say about this one. It's kind of an average episode. It's not bad. I actually remembered it being worse than it actually was, because most of what I remembered was towards the end, where the episode completely loses me. Which is still true. It gets to the part where it's like, ah, I will go with Tin Man. And he's this big organo ship, which is ludicrously advanced. Because for some reason, all the things they encounter in this show are always ludicrously advanced. You ever notice that? I mean, these guys have Megatech. They have transporters, they have replicators, they have multi-light-year scanners, they have warp drive. And then they encounter something that's just like, oh, that's cute. <laughs> every time. Anyways, anyways. It's not every time. It's just, it just drives me a little bit crazy sometimes. But anyways, and I just still don't like that part of the episode. I'm not going to lie. But the rest of it was actually pretty good. And I want to give a lot of the credit on that to Harry Groner. And I really hope I'm saying his name correctly. He's the guy who plays Tam. He does a really good job of it. He actually portrays someone who's basically... Well, I don't even want to say it like that, because he the way he portrays himself varies from scene to scene, as it should. I, I, I One of the things I love is that in several scenes, he's in the background, he's not the main focus, but he's just kind of doing this, right? Like, just wringing his hands a little bit, maybe kind of squishing in a little bit, you know? Sometimes he's kind of leaning forward on the panel, you know, just barely keeping it together. A lot of his visual presentation really helped sell me on the character and made him an actually engaging guest star. They also did a very smart thing because they gave three separate scenes where one other character played directly off of Tam. Now, those scenes are all about the guest character, and I've heard many people argue before that, you know, Star Trek, basically that guest stars shouldn't take over the show. Whether that's a good thing or a bad thing is going to depend on opinion and preference, and I don't want to say that right here, but I do think that they do good work with the three character scenes. First with Troy, then with Data, then with Picard, when it comes to interacting with Tam. And we do kind of see their differing approaches when it comes to him, and of course, all three of them show a different facet of Tam as a character, so I think they do good stuff with that. But anyways, I also want to mention that this is the writing trio, who I've mentioned before, they're the guys who wrote Samaritan Snare. Now, as I mentioned, Samaritan Snare wasn't a lamentation because the Wesley and Picard stuff was amazing. Like, I actually legitimately enjoyed that part of the show. Um, and so I was willing to give that a pass. I feel kind of the same about this one. The Tam stuff is great. It feels like these writers are really good at the deep character stuff, adding nuance and layers and expositing it well. One of my favorite bits in this episode is a bit where... Um, Troy comes in to meet Tam. This is a little bit into the episode. And, you know, he's he's doing the physical thing. And Troy says, why, you know, don't don't lie to me. You're pushing them out. You want everyone to think ill of you. Why do you want that? And he says, because I'm not a nice man. And then there's like a two-second pause. And then he says, okay, okay. She doesn't even respond. She doesn't have to. She just looks at him. And he's like, Okay, okay. And he drops the act because it's a lie. And in that one bit of the way the way the actor does it and the way the written, the writing is done, we get a lot of exposition about the character and what he's thinking and feeling without him having to say it. It's really good. And I really enjoy it. It's it's some great character stuff. Um I also want to give credit to Jay Chataway, and I hope I'm saying his name right. He's one of the other major composers when it comes to Star Trek. Uh, him and Dennis McCarthy are basically going to be the Trek composers for most of TNG and Deep Space Nine uh, post-season three, after they unfortunately got rid of the ever-amazing, I can't think of his name, 
Um, oh my god, the guy who did Best of Both Worlds. I can't think of his name. Oh, it's gonna bother me. Hang on. No, no, I'm looking it up right now. Both worlds. <laughs> I hate how hard of a time I have remembering names sometimes. I've heard some people say it's very unprofessional of me, how I don't bother to remember names and whatnot. Well, I do actually make a point of jotting down names on these notes to make sure I can remember them. Really, I do. Um, but when it comes to mentioning characters or, or uh, actors or whatever from unrelated stuff, I don't always remember their names because, again, I don't have that good of a memory for names. I don't know what it is. It's just the way my brain works. Anyways, the name of, is, of course, Ron Jones. Please don't put 50 people in the comments saying Ron Jones. <sighs> Basically, as soon as they got rid of Ron Jones, uh, Jay Chataway and Dennis McCarthy pretty much took over the music duties for TNG and DS9. It, there's some other composers that showed up. Anyways, this is his first one. This is the first time Chataway was actually involved in the show. And it was extremely noticeable. In fact, it was so noticeable that I remember the bit where the first Romulan Warbird decloaks, and it's going zoom right by. And I'm listening to the music, and it was so distracting... Not necessarily in a bad way. It was just so distracting that I'm like, I actually paused the episode and went and looked it up and found out that it was him and this is his first thing. And I was like, oh, okay. I still like it. I just think he tended towards a little bit too bombastic for certain scenes. But then again, I do enjoy his music in general, so I'm willing to give it a wash. So, Tam Elbram. Um, they do a couple things in this episode. So let me just go ahead and say, I don't think the main plot of this episode is particularly engaging. The least interesting aspect of Tin Man, for me, is Gomtu himself. It's like, okay, there's this super megatech alien thing that's an organic creature, because of course it's organic, and you had a crew and lost the crew and is millennia old, because of course it is, and is at a supernova because it wants to die. As weird as this may sound, the last part of that was the most engaging thing to me. And I know you're just going to be like, oh, you're just cynical, Lord. But what I mean by that... If some of the details were shifted around, I would find Tin Man to be a very engaging character, at least as an abstract. Because the idea, the way it's posited, we don't, we're never learn this for certainty, but the way it's posited is the idea that Tin Man had a very symbiotic relationship with its crew, to the point where it was, it considered them part of its family. As in, not just biologically related to, but the closest people in your life kind of a family family is chosen, as I often say. And so, I want you to picture for a moment how you would feel if all of your family died. That would be a horrible feeling, wouldn't it? Just atrocious. And so, the idea of this ship that is left alone after its crew died, and being left to roam the cosmos, and finally coming across a star, and deciding, yeah, I accept this. <laughs> That's powerful. And that has meaning. And a lot of the emotion of that comes across with Harry Groner's acting as Tam, because he's the one who basically recites this to Picard. What I like best about the Picard and Tam scene is that Picard basically doesn't put up with any of his crap at all. Picard's a wall. But it is not an unsympathetic wall. It is simply a wall. I don't dislike you. I don't hate you. But I don't trust you because you did something very reckless with good intentions that nearly caused us great harm. And I have greater responsibilities than to think of things in simple emotional levels like you do. It's not condescending. It is simply the adult speaking to the child. 
And Picard pulls that across very well. And it's worth noting that in this scene, Tam is at his most childlike of the three big character moments he gets. Which I'm doing these completely out of order because the Picard one's the third one, but whatever. The point being, you know, he, he's coming across as this, he's just, oh my god, and it's so alone, and I did all this, and, and then Troy says, wait, and then Tam has to step up and says, no, Picard's right. Picard is right. What he says is correct. I didn't think about the ramifications or the consequences. I just did. And there's this nice little scene, which is actually completely unnecessary, but it's still a nice little scene, where Data and Troy both basically reiterate what we already know to Picard. There is no malice in Tam. It's not a matter of trusting him. It is a matter of trusting him. This is something I've talked about with my own family in real life many times. There is trust in someone's intent, and then there is trust in someone's competency. Intent is actually, in my experience, easier. Easier. Very few people, in my experience that I've encountered, have genuine malicious intent. Actually want to be selfish to an ex a negative extent, or greedy, or avaristic, or whatever other horrible negative things you could think of that would cause them to be untrustworthy regarding intent. But it's a lot harder to trust someone with competency. I trust my sister with my life. But she is not the person I would trust with a medical dilemma. For example, I would trust my mom, lore mom, with that. She's the, she's the pharmacist, right? Uh, or my Aunt Sharon, for example. You know, I, I, I would not trust my sis with that. And thus, we show, it's a nice showcasing of the two types of trust. The problem is the scene goes on a little bit too long. It feels like it was padded out a little bit and that they just kind of rehash the same points over and over because that, that point, which I just said, is the whole scene. Bam. But let's rewind a little bit. I mentioned that great scene, you know, I'm not a nice man. Okay, okay, with him and Troy. What I love best about that is he's still not comfortable with Troy, but he is far more himself with Troy. He's still agitated and stressed, but he can't bring himself to lie to her. Multiple times in that conversation, he lies to her and then takes it back. And we get the implication that this is what he does to most people. He just lies to them to their face and then just moves on. And they don't care enough to bother, so they never learn further of the truth, right? But with Troy, she just looks at him. He's like, okay, 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 you're right, you're right. No, hang on, let me tell you the truth. Yes, I'm in contact with him. He's called Gom too. It's not really a conscious thing, you know. And it's a great character dynamic back and forth. I also like how even though he can't really relax around her, he is very open around her. He flat out admits to her. He basically treats her like you theoretically should treat the idea of a, of a psychiatrist. Of someone that you go to to tell about your problems and your worries and your stresses. And they try to help you through it. He treats her like a counselor. And funnily enough, she does a pretty good job in return. Marina Sirtis does a good performance in this episode, I think. Um, it's nice to see her being able to do stuff. In total contrast to this, he's basically flip-flopped when it comes to Data. He is completely relaxed around Data. His body language is completely different. and Well, not completely relaxed. That's an exaggeration, because we see him completely relaxed later in the episode. But he is much more relaxed, much more at ease, and really has no problem just speaking his mind. And if anything, though, it's he's not quite open or honest with Data so much as he is self-examining 
I know that sounds like a weird thing, but if you pay attention to his dialogue and the way he talks to Data, everything he says is he is presuming Data is effectively the same as himself. Not literally, I mean, but I mean in the same kind of bucket, in the same boat. You know, you you are different, you are usual, unusual, you are unique. Uh, in fact, I, I think I wrote it down. Um, perhaps you're just different. It's not a bad thing, you know. And we see that Tam, in addition to being more relaxed with Data because he can't sense him, he also finds so much of Data fascinating as a unique being, since we know Tam is into that sort of thing, but also as a unique being which has similar similarities to himself, because he himself is a very unique being. There's a nice bit between Crusher, Troy, and Picard, which basically exposits on the nature of Betazoids. In fact, if you're paying attention, this is really really the first time we've actually had any backstory on how the Betazoids actually work as a species. The idea that their telepathic abilities don't develop until much further into the life. And basically, they all have the X gene. <laughs> I'm only partially kidding. I've, I've seen that comic. Those comics. Excuse me. Anyways, point being that having thus developed and thus moved forward, they can then start developing their telepathic abilities. Some rare of them develop them at birth, and I like how the episode shines a horrific light on that, because that makes perfect sense. An adult who can read other people's minds is going to have a hard time with that. A baby? Which doesn't even understand most of the complexities of thought, nuance, and voice yet? Which can't even speak, being bombarded with all the thoughts of those around it? That's horrifying. And, of course, Troy mentions most don't even survive that. Only with, the, the only reason Tam survives is they caught it very early and they put him into very special care and treatment at a very early age. I like that. And again, this is part of why I find Tam more interesting than Tin Man. And yes, I get it, Tam, Tin Man. Yeah, I get that. Um, just pointing it out in case anybody thinks I forgot about it. Because I find the plight of the innate psychic from birth who has basically never really managed it so much as just done what he could with it to be more interesting than super tech alien thing. Anyways, anyways. Um, so, I, because I have to nitpick every now and again, I have to point out that Data makes this comment as part of his logical deduction that they're being followed by a ship. And his logical deduction is there's no known natural phenomena which, tra which can travel at warp. Now, I could just go down the list, but I decided to name the two that were most obvious to me. The crystalline entity, which Data himself has had personal experience with, and also the, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, Dicanerium cloud creature. Back from the episode Obsession over on TOS. This is why I write this stuff down. I'm still, I'm still saying it wrong, I'm sure. They say it in the episode. But, you know, the energy being, asterisk from the book, right? <laughs> Literally, the point of that thing was that it moved at warp. <sighs> Anyways. I'm nitpicking out, nitpick over. <clears throat> I don't have much else to say except for one additional thing. So first of all, they have this literal race set up between the, the Federation and the Romulans trying to get to Gomtu first. Now, that makes a degree of sense. I, I have been told, although I wasn't able to verify this for this rumination, so treat this as rumor, but I have been told that this was supposed to be a, a form of an allegory for the space race. Because back in the day, there were certain people who thought that there was going to be some tangible tactical benefit, or I suppose there's a tangible strategic benefit, for actually having access to space first. Uh, obviously, that wasn't particularly true, although that could also be debated. But the point is, the episode makes a nice point of how much this is a race, 
And I always loved the idea of one of the Dideridexes. Oh, by the way, this is the first time they mentioned the name, the class of the ship, the Dideridex Warbird, that we've seen since season one. Anyways, they mentioned that the Warbird, the one Warbird, basically kills itself to get here on time. I kind of liked that. Not only that they could do that to their ships, because it also means we could theoretically do that to our ships, but that they were effectively willing to throw an entire Warbird. And these are big Doom ships. These are basically their ships of the line for the Romulan Star Empire at just trying to make sure they get first contact with this thing before the Federation. Now that's interesting. But it also means this is a very politically charged situation. Because it means that this is a territory the Romulans have a claim on, although how much that claim is valid is of course something that can be debated, as all land claims are. And in addition to that, the Romulans care about this enough to throw an entire capital ship at it, and Probably their crew, although obviously the intent is their crew would be picked up by the second warbird on the way back. But my point being, this is obviously something the Romulan Star Empire gives a damn about. So then the Federation gets there, and they allow them to go first, basically. Also, quick aside, I like how the first barrage from the warbird was so damaging that they were still repairing the damage when they got hit by the second barrage. But anyways, poor Jordy. I feel so bad for Jordy in this episode. Good use of techno... Good use of technical stuff. I don't want to say Technobabble, because they don't really drift into Technobabble in this episode. Instead, most of what Jordy says makes perfect sense, and basically sounds like him repairing the ship. So another thing that these writers are good at. Anywho. Um, but I bring this all up because... Let's look at this from a political perspective for a second. The Romulan Empire, which has a claim on this area, has decided to go send out a ship, basically on a one-way trip, to deal with this with the possibility that they might die, knowing that they will destroy the thing if they can't claim it. Now, the Romulan commander obviously decides to destroy it way too early, but he was probably pushed to that by the fact that there was a Federation cruiser right over there. Now, they then send... The, well, then, you know, then the second warbird shows up. Note that the Federation does not have a second ship involved. They, of course, know they sent the Enterprise, but that's it. And then the first ship is destroyed... And the second ship is like, we're going to attack this. And the Federation ship says, we're willing to attack you to defend this. How is this not grounds for war? I mean, I'm sorry. I, I know that politics just don't work correctly in most of Star Trek. But just taking, taking a step back for a second, this is a situation that very clearly would speak to a war scenario. Especially with the Romulans, who I remind you, we are actively in a Cold War with at this point in history. That was the, the point of several episodes of Season 3, and will continue to be a point going forward in TNG. What I find interesting, though, several times, Picard himself, and the Federation in general, has been willing to draw a line in the sand, basically, and say, I'm staking this on this. You know, this came up in The Defector, for example. But what I find strange is that no mention of that is made here. Picard just makes the claim that he's willing to defend, you know, Tin Man, for no real reason other than the fact that it happens to be a sentient life form. Which, okay, that's a good reason, but usually there's at least some effort or, or impetus put into the political side of things. Back in the episode Sins of the Father, Picard very clearly understood the political ramifications of what he was trying to do in, in the presence of the Klingon High Council. Here, he's just trying to defend a, you know, Tin Man, Gomtu, from the bad guys, and it lacks the kind of depth that the situation really should have. Oh, and then, after they all get pushed away from the supernova, they just leave as if nothing ever happened. It just feels like a... 
a missed opportunity. In fact, if I was to be so bold, I'd say the Romulan thing was thrown in for basically no reason. Because if you really sit and think about it, the Romulan's inclusion only really adds an additional ticking clock on top of the existing ticking clock of the supernova. So in other words, it's redundant. Now, you could argue that it adds some tension to the show, but I would disagree completely. The first Romulan sh shows up and says, Ah, we made it first! <laughs> and then they're blown to hell. And then we see it's a way of revealing that uh, he has access to uh, Gomtu, that Tam has access to Gomtu, but that's it. And then after that, the second Romulan's like, Oh, we're here to posture for a bit. And Picard says, oh, I posture back. And then it doesn't matter ever again. My point being... I don't know if this is true, but the Romulans also feel like padding. That if you ejected the Romulans from this plot entirely, the structure of the episode would remain intact. We already have the ticking clock to add tension and drama. That's the supernova. And we already have the threat of the Romulans. Just just leave the threat of the Romulans in the background. Why do, why do we want to do this right? Well, because the Romulans might be in, sending in ships to this area. This is area that's been claimed by the Romulans Star Empire. And everyone's like, oh, that's super serious. We need to be super careful. But don't actually have the Romulans show up. Just do that. Right? Anyways, I digress. As I said, I don't have much to say. I hope you've enjoyed. I'll see you guys next time.